0: hey mike here i just wanted to let you know that you can listen to dark poutine early and ad free on amazon music included with prime
1: knock that fire down 19
2: copy captain let's move
0: Holy guacamole, Matthew. Uh, I guess all that jingly stuff means that it is the annual Christmas episode of Dark Poutine. I'm so looking forward to this one. It's the most wonderful episode of the year. I don't know if that's the case. We we have a lot of wonderful episodes in my opinion. <laughs> but of course, yeah. But I'm, none with the Christmas spirit. Well, I don't know. Yeah, you're right, actually. Uh. <laughs> Anyway, a big ho-ho to you, Matthew. Are you ready for the holiday?
2: I'm ready to make the Yuletide gay, Mike. Uh, the <laughs> Any Yuletide involving you is definitely going to be Yuletide. gay. It's a gay Yuletide. You're going to be over at our place on Christmas.
0: I am looking forward to Christmas with you, Justin, and Steve.
2: We even got you a stocking.
0: A stock? I yeah. have to get stuff for you guys, too. No, you don't.
2: Yes, I do. No.
0: Why not? That's fine. <laughs>
2: It's fine. No, your presence is enough of a gift, Mike. Oh, God. No, you know I'll bring
0: something. Do you guys like chocolate? I do. I'll bring Justin some kale.
2: <laughs> bring him some kale and a <laughs> tomato. <laughs> oh, Justin, here's your festive
0: kale. <laughs> Blech. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar.
2: It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, you. pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately.
0: As this is our annual Christmas episode, it's our tradition to tell a Yuletide-themed yarn. This is one about a duo of bandits who burglarized various shopping malls across the United States and Canada year after year during the holidays. Their insidious M.O. was to work from the inside. The group's leader, a safecracker named Willie Thomas Soak, and his sidekick, a little person of color named Marcus Skidmore, would acquire jobs inside the department stores in the malls. Soak, a foul-moused chronic alcoholic and sex addict, would play the store Santa Claus, and Skidmore, his evil sidekick, would be one of Santa's elves. Finally, after the murder of the head of a mall security manager named Johnny Jin Calhoun at a Phoenix, Arizona shopping complex, the pair were brought to justice in 2003. This was thanks partly to the unwitting help of a Canadian-born 10-year-old boy, Thurman Merman, who was living in Phoenix with his grandmother at the time. This is Dark Poutine, episode 249, Safe Cracking Santa and His Murderous Elf. Willie Soak's life was rough right out of the gate. He was born on August 4, 1955 in Hot Springs, Arkansas. The center of Hot Springs is the oldest federal reserve in the United States, today preserved as Hot Springs National Park. Of interest, it is former U.S. President Bill Clinton's boyhood home. Although it's a resort city, the Soak family lived on what would be called the wrong side of the tracks. Willie's dad... Carl Childers Soak was a cruel, violent man and a petty criminal. In between the beatings of his son, Willie, Carl taught the boy how to crack a safe. Willie later said it was the only worthwhile thing his father ever did for him. I think that perhaps safe
2: cracking is becoming a lost art. Well, I don't know. Do, Do people still crack safes? I don't know, do they? It it seems like it was more important in bygone days than it is now.
0: I watched a TikTok video of people taking apart an old ATM. Okay. They were just smashing it apart. There was no cracking really involved. No, it was smashing. No, it was, they were safe smashing. Okay. I think I'm going to take it up. (laughs) Good for you. Willie's mother, Prudence Eugenia Soak, 23, was killed when Willie was only four years old. She was drunk when she was killed by a semi-truck filled with a load of live chickens on Christmas Eve. She ran into the street, fleeing from the owner of a children's shoe store from where she just lifted a pair of snow boots for little Willie. After that, Willie loathed Christmas. Carl resented Christmas too, not only because he missed his wife, but because he hated being left alone with little Willie, whom he referred to as Satan Spawn and Useless. Wow, that's got to ruin Christmas for you. It really does. Like, mom's killed, and then your dad's a jerk about it. So he went off Christmas for life. Yeah. Was he off chicken as well? I don't know if he was off chicken, but, you know. Carl Soak was in and out of jail all his life, leaving young Willie with a string of sitters or relatives who either ignored or abused the boy. He started drinking when he was seven years old. Willie found solace in his grandfather's moonshine, making himself blind for a week on one occasion after drinking the grog unmixed. As Carl was rarely present, Willie started skipping school and getting into trouble and was a known vandal. When he was eight years old, Willie was the only suspect in a fire that burned down the city's historic abandoned train station. Willie denied responsibility for the blaze, but several witnesses had seen him entering the boarded up structure and exiting
2: just before the smoke began pouring out. You know, my hometown had a historic train station that was burnt down by an arsonist as well. Really? Maybe it was him. It could have been.
0: Uh, and you know What? What? That happened in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia as well. When I was a child. Yep. Wow. Isn't that weird? I guess maybe. It was a
2: lovely old building.
0: Maybe he was a serial arsonist who went around burning down buildings. Yeah. Train stations. For some reason, resented trains. Made his way up to Canada to do it. Yeah. Willie finally left school and home for good after the seventh grade, having fallen in with a group of like-minded young criminals. Willie and his pals began breaking into homes and cars and selling the stolen items for cash at shady pawn shops around the state. The boy's criminality soon progressed into car theft and breaking into local businesses, putting Willie's safe-cracking talents to use. Willie did his first bit in prison at 16. He was caught by police having passed out drunk after he and his buddies had stolen golf carts at a local golf course. they destroyed the greens causing thousands of dollars of damage while joyriding in the carts. Willie was drunk out of his mind on cheap wine and had crashed his cart over a cliff and crapped his pants. He promptly passed out in his poopy drawers and his friends left him there when they heard the sirens approaching. The cops found young Willie, not the least bit ashamed, lying in his own filth. Before his trial, Willie spent time in hospital. He'd lost a kidney and severely injured his heel in the golf cart accident. His kidney was removed to save his life, but when the hospital discovered that Willie had no insurance, they refused to provide more than minimal first aid to the budding young criminal. Willie was left with a bone chip in his heel, causing him a mild limp afterward. The judge was unimpressed with the young man's antics, especially as the golf course he'd trashed was the one that the judge played on. Willie was sentenced to seven years, but only spent 18 months behind bars after his public defender had the sentence reduced on appeal. After he got out of prison, Willie's grandmother gave him a letter. He'd been using her address as his official residence, although she wanted nothing to do with him, as he'd stolen from her multiple times. The letter looked official, so Margaret June Soak reached out to Willie's friends to tell him she had something for him. The government's letter told Willie he'd been drafted into the U.S. Army. Rather than appear as ordered, Willie split across the border to what he called Shit-Ass Mexico. He spent the next two years there robbing tourists from the U.S. and Canada. Smooth-talking Willie gained the trust of unsuspecting vacationers. He would drug them and then steal their valuables and passports to sell them for booze and living expenses. While in Mexico, Willie met and married his first wife, Maria Santiago. The marriage was annulled after Maria caught her new husband with her aunt in the washroom at the wedding reception held at her family home. Two years after he dodged the draft, the Vietnam War came to a screeching halt. The U.S. bailed out of the country, extracting their troops, having lost the war. Willie was drunk on tequila when he crossed the border back into the U.S. at Matamoros. He was immediately arrested as a draft dodger and thrown into jail. He never did time for the crime, as his first name, Willie, was spelled with a Y rather than an I-E on his original draft notice. So he evaded prosecution on a technicality.
2: So that would probably happen to me as well, because everyone puts two T's. So if there's a draft here, I'd avoid it. But also, what? Why would he be a, a, arrested after the war was over?
0: Well, because that's people were arrested for dodging the draft. It was just because it was a crime, and you'd avoided the the entire war doesn't mean that you had not committed the crime. Yeah, it shouldn't be a crime to draft the dodge. You mean to dodge the draft? Dodge the
2: dra- <laughs> draft the dodge.
0: Oh boy. So draft a dodge. I'm thinking, oh, it's like. Draft the dodge. It's somebody who's, yeah, there's some weird car racing thing happening. <laughs> or there could be somebody as a draftsman who is creating Dodge cars. There you go. Yeah. Draft so, the dodge. Draft the dodge. And that shouldn't be a crime either. Rather than take his good fortune in evading prison as a sign to turn things around, Willie fell right back into his same old ways. He boosted a car only a block away from the lockup he'd been held in, driving it back to Arkansas. Upon arriving, Willie found that his entire crew was either in prison, doing long bits, or had died in Vietnam. For the next 15 years, Willie drifted around the United States and Canada, staying in fleabag motels and SROs. He made his way by breaking into businesses and high-end homes at night, cracking safes, and stealing their valuables. He was known to vandalize the houses as sort of a signature. It was a screw you to the homeowners he resented for having better lives than he did. Willie met a sex worker named Opal Tomlinson in New Orleans. The two were married in a drunken haze on the night they'd met. In the morning, Willie, in a rare moment of sobriety, realized what he'd done. Seeing that being tied down was not congruent with his lifestyle choices, Willie fled New Orleans and heartbroken Opal never saw him again. Perhaps because he moved around so much, having no fixed address, Willie never got caught. He used a variety of aliases as well. Some of the names he used were Carl Childers, Johnny Tyler, Ed Crane, Terry Collins, Jasper Woodcock, Reginald Perry, and Billy Joe Thurston. He would change his appearance from time to time to throw people off. At one point, while on the run after a particularly lucrative burglary, he gained 50 pounds pretending to be an intellectually challenged man who'd just been released from what he called the Nervous Hospital. In 1990, Willie met Marcus Skidmore, the man who'd become his partner in crime for the next 12 years. Their meeting was fortuitous for both men. Both of them were down on their luck when they found each other in Marcus's hometown, the tiny community of Uniontown in central Alabama. Willie had been drunkenly making eyes at a woman in a dive bar. The problem was the woman's six foot six, 280 pound former high school linebacker boyfriend, who was seated right next to her. After numerous verbal exchanges containing colorful language, the gigantic man picked up Willie and threw him like a rag doll to the sticky floor of the bar, where he began kicking the much smaller man in the head, bashing in Willie's eye socket. Marcus Skidmore, who'd been drinking and eating disco fries, a southern version of poutine, with his wife Lois at a table nearby, saw the altercation. What are disco fries? Well, disco fries are sort of like a New Jersey version of poutine. Okay. But they are typically covered in mozzarella cheese and brown gravy. So it's not necessarily curds. Mm. So it's not really poutine. And they were popularized in New Jersey in the 1990s but they gained their name in the 1970s for being a favorite of late night diners who often came from dancing at disco clubs. So the dish is popular in New Orleans as well, including variations called Cajun poutine. Okay, so disco fries, so it's
2: kind of like a disco nap. What's a disco nap? When you finish work and you know you're going to be out disco dancing all night, so you have a little nap. Oh. it. We used to call them disco naps i have, have done you never, this uh, i have
0: done a disco you nap just didn't know it was called a disco I nap. i didn't know it was called that yeah well there you go i look at me <laughs> disco i was nap. i was participating and i didn't even know hey, it. there you go the man kicking Willie was someone whom marcus knew well his name was jerome chester jr and he'd bullied Marcus relentlessly in high school, picking on him because he was born with achondroplasia, euphemistically called dwarfism. Marcus is 3 feet 9 inches tall and refers to himself as a little person. According to Johns Hopkins, achondroplasia is a genetic condition affecting a protein in the body called fibroblast growth factor receptor. In achondroplasia, this protein begins to function abnormally, slowing down the growth of bone in the cartilage, of the growth plate. This leads to shorter bones, abnormally shaped bones, and shorter stature. Adult height in people with achondroplasia is between 42 and 56 inches. Although the cause is a genetic mutation, only one out of five cases is hereditary, passed down by a parent. End quote. Seeing his opportunity for revenge, Marcus grabbed his fork from the table, leapt up, and ran at Jerome, stabbing the massive man in the rear end, tearing Jerome's tendon and dropping him like a giant sack of potatoes. As Jerome lay writhing on the floor, cussing a blue streak, Marcus and Lois helped Willie to his feet and into their car, driving him back to their mobile home outside of town. Seeing a tattoo Willie had acquired during his first and only prison stint, Marcus inquired what Willie had been inside for. The two started chatting openly about their shared criminal histories. Marcus Anthony Skidmore was born in Uniontown on March 31st, 1958. His parents, Henrietta, a server at a local diner, and Joe, a Baptist preacher, loved him deeply. There had been others on Joe's side of the family who had been born with chondroplasia, so they knew one of their children might be born with it. Marcus, the seventh of ten, was the only one. Even though his brothers and sisters did not treat him poorly and defended him against the many bullies he'd endured, Marcus resented being the only person of more diminutive stature in town and in their home. By the time he was in junior high school, Marcus had developed quite a chip on his shoulder. He hated the world. He started shoplifting, stealing comic books from the local corner store, and eight tracks from the town's only music store. He had an affinity for gospel and country music, especially enjoying Charlie Pride. He recalled later wearing out the tape Charlie Pride Sings Heart Songs Playing over and over Pride's number one hit song, Kiss an Angel Good Morning, he'd listen and secretly dream of one day falling in love. He played the tape so often he had to steal three copies over a few years. My mom loved Charlie, Charlie
2: Pride. Well, whose mom didn't love Charlie loved Pride? loved Charlie Pride. And, yeah. and I'm thinking about this guy, it, mm. it, being quote, as he called himself, a little person. Yeah. Would have been really tough back then. I mean, it's maybe not easier in society now, but you know, now we have Peter people like Peter Dinklage who plays like roles, yeah, who isn't like the butt of the jokes because he's yeah, small. It's not; they're real roles. He right? does
0: play some of those. He played that kind of role in, in Elf, and but it was, it's yeah, it's
2: hard to explain it unless you've but seen it the just, movie. It's, it it would have been really hard back then, right? Totally. Yeah, probably yeah, it, probably still difficult because a lot of people are still assholes, right? But yeah.
0: People look at people looked at uh, little people as munchkins and, and things like that and called them horrible names. Yeah. So, yeah. Marcus was well known for using his smaller than average size to go undetected, allowing him to steal at will. He knew if he timed things just right, he could enter an establishment, hide behind shelving and furniture inside, pocket what he wanted, and be out again with no one the wiser. Many of his crimes went undiscovered until a store took inventory much later. Sometimes, he got caught red-handed. He'd done community service and was on probation several times, but never in juvie. In his teens, Marcus became brazen and progressed to housebreaking. Marcus liked stealing. It gave him a thrill, and he was hooked. He began to plan more complicated crimes. Just after his 18th birthday, Marcus got into his first real trouble. He'd entered the local bank just before closing and hid in a trash can in the washroom. He'd thought it would be simple to rifle through the cash drawers that night and hide inside the garbage can again until the bank opened. Marcus had not foreseen the motion detectors inside the bank, and when he emerged from his hiding spot and entered the central part of the institution, the silent alarms were triggered. Marcus hastily went through empty cash drawers, realizing too late that the cash had been locked up safely for the night inside the bank's vault, which he couldn't get into. Police arrived in droves, and Marcus, armed with a Colt 45, decided to shoot it out with them. He blasted away through the glass doors of the bank. No one was injured, and after he ran out of ammo only 3 minutes later, Marcus surrendered. He was charged with attempted armed bank robbery and attempted murder of seven Uniontown police officers, one of whom happened to be Marcus's brother Cecil. Marcus was facing 25 years to life in prison. His family and defense lawyer pleaded with the judge to be lenient on the young man. Thanks to his father's standing in the community, the judge and prosecutor agreed that if Marcus were to plead guilty to attempted burglary, the other charges would be dropped. Marcus was sentenced to 12 years behind bars and began serving
2: his time immediately. He just got too greedy, didn't he? Yeah. You know, that's the, that's usually the way people get caught. Yeah. Right? A, a bank is a big step up from what he was doing before. Totally.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, he maybe wasn't ready to
2: rob a bank, he but He was totally not prepared for it. No.
0: Lois Fung, the 17-year-old daughter of the local bank manager whose bank Marcus had attempted to rob was in court watching the sentencing. She'd come to every one of his court appearances and become obsessed with the young man after seeing his photo in the newspaper. Having just moved to town after her father took the management job only a month before the attempted robbery, she'd not yet met Marcus, but she was in love. Marcus noticed her too, and the couple fell for each other without a word in the courtroom. Lois later married Marcus while he was still behind bars, She visited him whenever she could, and they talked about life after Marcus's release, both which she and he hoped would be a life of luxury based on a life of crime that they both aspired to. Lois was an odd duck, and most likely a narcissistic psychopath. Born to a Chinese father and Jewish mother, Lois was raised in the Jewish faith and was known to break into Yiddish, especially when upset, which was often. She liked to create personas for herself, Her favorite was portraying herself as a Vietnamese immigrant. Although she'd been born in New York City and never been out of the country, she adopted a terrible and shrill Vietnamese accent, telling her new school chums her family had come to the U.S. from Vietnam on a rubber raft to escape the communist regime there. No one believed her, but she persisted. Marcus, too, knew she was full of crap, but he didn't seem to care. Marcus had found his angel to kiss good morning, and that's all he wanted.
2: She sounds kind of like the alien Roger in the cartoon American Dad, with all of his personas.
0: I love that alien
2: I, so much. I love his personas. Yeah, he gets like I I do personas myself sometimes. Sure. Like today, I'm gonna be. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna be
0: this person today. I'm it's, never anybody interesting. My different glasses, right?
2: Oh, I see. Yeah, um, whenever I put glasses on, I'm like you know, 1970 t- These today, these are 1970s porn star. Okay. And then I have the other pair that is an um, aging fashion editor worried about his job because all the young people are coming up.
0: Oh, well, there you go. Yep. Marcus had been out of jail for about three years when he had his fateful meeting with Willie T. Soak. Marcus, a habitual thief, was looking to take a run at Bigger Fish and needed a partner. Willie, a skilled safe cracker, needed someone to get him into places undetected. It was a match made in heaven. From then on, their partnership would lead them down a dark trail of crime, including at least one murder. More after a quick break.
1: I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, the Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC, available now wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And we are back, Matthew. What are your thoughts so far? These three sound like real characters. Oh yeah, totally. Almost like movie characters. They're they're a lot like movie characters. I it, Some of this just feels so fictional. I can't believe that it actually went on. Well, truth is stranger than fiction, isn't it? Well, sometimes fiction is stranger than truth. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Marcus, the brains of the operation, had the idea for he and Willie to play Santa and one of his elves to infiltrate the department stores at shopping malls all over North America. He was done with Uniontown and wanted out, as did Lois. Her parents had disowned her after she'd married the man who tried to rob her father's bank. She'd lived with Marcus's parents until his release
2: in 1988. I can see how marrying the robber of your parents' bank would cause a slight rift in the family. Just a little one. <laughs> like, holy smokes. You can't like, no, that's can't... like That's a big middle finger to your parents. Right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Marcus began sending out headshots and resumes, applying for Santa Claus and elf jobs for he and Willie in department stores all over the continent. As an added bonus, Marcus was pretty talented musically. He was a proficient drummer and could play piano and a custom-made banjo suited to his size. The combination of Santa, played by Willie, and a musical elf sidekick was too much for many large department store managers to pass up. Every year someone fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Willie would be Santa to the kids and Marcus would drum, tell jokes, sing, and play his little banjo. The holiday shoppers filled up the establishment's safes with cash while Willie and Marcus bided their time before making their move. Willie would smuggle his safe-cracking tools into the stores wrapped in presents and put them into a sack he'd sling over his back, just like the real Santa. When questioned, he told security officers the gifts were for kids. Although many of them felt something was off, they often just believed him and let him go. I mean, why would Santa lie? Marcus would hide somewhere in the mall when the day came for their annual heist, usually Christmas Eve. He'd wait there until everyone had left the store. While in prison, embarrassed about his failed bank robbery attempt, Marcus had learned from other career thieves how to bypass and override numerous brands of security systems, and he would put that to work. He'd become an expert at it. He would disable the system and allow Willie back inside where the safecracker set to work opening the store's safe. At the same time Willie was doing his thing, Marcus was armed with a list made by Lois. She'd scouted the stores for the most valuable items, jewelry, furs, electronics, etc. The trio would later fence some of the items for cash, but there was always something for Lois and her ever-growing greedy lifestyle. For some reason, known only to her, she was adamant every year that Marcus steal her a new loofah. Lois was the gang's getaway driver. She'd wait nearby in a nondescript van, always stolen, watching for Marcus's signal to swoop in and flee with Marcus, Willie, and their loot. Marcus and Lois would vacation in Florida for the next year at a condo they'd purchased with their ill-gotten gains. Willie, however, would drift, usually blowing all his money on booze and sex workers by March, having to supplement his lifestyle with other criminal activity until just before Halloween when he'd meet Marcus and Lois in Uniontown, where Marcus would visit his family every year. From there, they would head off to their next destination, always planned well in advance by Marcus and Lois. They'd hit department stores in Philadelphia, San Bernardino, Memphis, Kansas City, Fort Worth, Omaha, Buffalo, Charlotte, and even in Canada, hitting the Sears in Winnipeg and the West Edmonton Mall's Hudson's Bay store. Willie put a kibosh in the Canadian stores after West Edmonton saying, quote, it was too goddamn cold in that godforsaken
2: country, end quote. Perhaps that's why we have a lower crime rate. It's just too goddamn cold. Well, it could be. I mean, I think our crime rate's a little bit lower than America. Well, I don't know. if I'm not if, sure if it is per capita or not. I'm our murder that.
0: rate is definitely lower, especially by guns. But, is it? Oh, yes, okay. very much so. Okay. But anyway, you know. In the year 2002, the year before they were caught, they'd taken their biggest haul, hitting the Macy's store in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They'd made off with $180,000, split 60-40, with Lois and Marcus getting a lion's share. Their haul of loot was epic too, with a massive haul of Sony laptops among the stolen goods equaling a value of $100,000. There'd been close calls though. Willie's alcoholism was progressing, and he'd become more reckless. He'd come to work drunk several times. More than one child said that Santa, quote, smelled funny and had sworn at them. When confronted by the store manager, Marcus, thinking fast, lied, telling the man that Willie had had a low blood sugar event that wouldn't happen again. Marcus threatened Willie, who'd also promised he'd be more careful. Marcus, though, began to wonder about his partnership with Willie, and he and Lois talked in dark tones. When they met in Uniontown for Halloween 2003, Willie was pleased to hear that the target was a Neiman Marcus store in Saguaro Mall in Phoenix, Arizona. Arizona's climate was much more pleasant at the time of year than many other parts of the country. They met with store manager Bob Chapeska, a meek man who wouldn't say boo to a goose. Willie was drunk at the time of their first meeting and made a fool of himself. Marcus again went to the tried-and-true low-blood-sugar defense, which seemed to work. There was tension between the two bandits right away that year. They'd argued about Willie's drinking and how his reckless behavior might draw attention to them. Marcus was really upset when Willie showed up driving a Jaguar he'd stolen from a valet stand at a local country club. Marcus was unaware that Willie had also gone to the Jag owner's home, used the attached house key to get inside, and cracked the safe in the owner's office, stealing $20,000 in bearer bonds. But he had not stopped there. He vandalized the house a bit, as was his usual signature, tipping things over, smashing crystalware, and taking paintings off the wall. He'd even eaten fried chicken he found in the refrigerator, leaving a drumstick along with his poop in an unflushed toilet off the mansion's primary bedroom. Meanwhile, Bob Chapeska had gone to the head of security for the mall, chain-smoking Johnny Calhoun, 46. Chapeska wanted Gin to look into Santa and his elf, Something was really not right with the pair. As well as the run-in he'd had with Willie during their first meeting, Bob Chepeska suspected something a little more concerning. He believed that he'd overheard Willie and a woman, quote, fornicating loudly inside a dressing room in the store's Ladies' Big and Tall department. He was sure he'd heard Willie's voice telling the woman awful things and could see what he believed to be Santa's boots under the door. Johnny Gin Calhoun said he would look into the pair for Bob. Gin Calhoun was a former U.S. Ranger and all-star baseball outfielder in high school. He was known for his quick wit, which he'd inherited partly from his great-grandmother, who was the granddaughter of enslaved people who had been emancipated with Lincoln's proclamation. Jin had been in trouble, though, in his teens, and though he'd kept his nose clean publicly— after his death, it came out that he'd been involved in some shady dealings around town, especially regarding illegal gambling and fencing stolen goods. On his way back to his hotel room, Willie spotted Gin ransacking the room. Afraid to return to his room, Willie slept in the jag that night, and the next day he looked for a mark, knowing he needed a new place to stay. Willie set his sights on a 10-year-old boy named Thurman Merman, who'd sat on his lap at the department store as well as other things like a stuffed pink elephant he said he wanted, the boy had told Willie he missed his dad and hoped he would come home for Christmas. When Willie asked where his father was, Thurman told him he's on an adventure, exploring mountains, he's been gone a long time, end quote. It turns out Thurman's father, Roger, a Canadian-born accountant, was in the state pen doing three to six years for embezzlement. Willie followed up by asking about Thurman's mother. Thurman replied, she lives in God's house with Jesus and Mary and the ghost and the long-eared donkey and Joseph and the talking walnut, end quote. Willie asked who took care of Thurman, and Thurman related that his grandmother lived with him, but she didn't talk much because she had what Thurman called old-timer's disease. Willie asked whether Granny was spry, but Thurman didn't seem to understand what that meant. Seeing his opportunity, Willie offered to drive Thurman home, to which Thurman said, Thanks, Santa.
2: I feel bad for the kid.
0: I feel bad for him, too. So
2: his mom's dead, right? His mother is dead. His His, dad's in jail. Well,
0: his mother is with Joseph in the Talking Walnut.
2: Okay. His dad's in jail and his grandmother has has Alzheimer's, which is sad. So he's, he's probably kind of in some ways looking after her a bit as well. Sure. And he's probably lonely. Yeah. At such a young age.
0: He was, you know, I don't get into it, but he was a little overweight. Right. And, uh. He may have had some neurodivergence going on. He was a little weird. Okay. Um. He was somebody who the other kids picked on. Mm. He was constantly being picked on.
2: These, and uh, these kids always turn out to be the cool adults, though.
0: Oftentimes, that's the way it you is.
2: Know? Yeah. You know the 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 football star in high school. Yeah. Tends not to not to live up to it, but the like cool weirdo kids tend to like do amazing things later.
0: I think it's because the cool weirdo kids have to you know, have to try harder.
2: Yeah, maybe. Yeah. You know?
0: Upon entering the Thurman residence, Willie donned a balaclava and armed himself with a blackjack to knock out the old woman. When Thurman and Willie entered the house, they were met by Granny, who seemed unfazed by the ski mask-wearing Santa suit-clad man armed with a club. She called Willie by her son Roger's name and offered to make him some sandwiches. Willie brazenly broke into the home safe and moved in with Thurman and his grandmother that night. He ditched the Jag for Roger's BMW and even moved in an alcoholic barmaid he'd met into the house. The woman, Sue, had a thing for Santa Claus, and the pair would have sex throughout the residence, sometimes observed by Thurman, who didn't seem to understand what was going on. Willie told Thurman that the woman was Mrs. Claus's sister, whom he'd left the North Pole to be with. Thurman just bought the lie. Finding nothing at Willie's motel room, it took Gin Calhoun only a few inquiries to find that a bunch of department stores had been hit across the United States and Canada, always involving a man playing Santa Claus and a small person of color playing his counterpart. Rather than take this knowledge to Bob Chipesca or the authorities, Calhoun approached Willie and Marcus letting them know he knew who they were and demanded half their take not to turn them in. Marcus attempted to negotiate a better deal, but to Willie's disappointment, he failed terribly. As the day for the heist approached, Christmas Eve, and unknown to Willie, Marcus and Lois began plotting to take out Jin Calhoun. They resented his extortion attempt and wanted the haul for themselves. They were sick of Willie, too. He was a liability. They'd take him out as soon as he'd open the store safe. Lois had followed Jin home several times and knew his route. She and Marcus determined that a dark stretch of road would be the best place to take out Jin Calhoun. Feigning the need to jumpstart their van, Marcus waved Jin down when he was passing by. When Jin walked between the cars to jumpstart the van, Lois gunned the engine, hitting Jin with a car and knocking him senseless. Marcus further incapacitated the man via electrocution with the jumper cables before Lois backed up and drove into him quickly, killing Jin Calhoun by crushing him against his Chevrolet avalanche with their van. The couple rolled Jin's body off the road into the woods and later dumped Jin's car on a back road, setting fire to it. Being around Thurman, the naive youngster, Willie began to feel bad about himself. In a crisis of conscience, Willie then attempted suicide by inhaling vehicle exhaust fumes while parked in the home's garage. Thurman found him in the garage and Willie gave the boy a letter to give to the police confessing his misdeeds, turning in Marcus and Lois and admitting the heist planned for Christmas Eve. Willie kept telling Thurman to leave him alone but soon noticed that Thurman had a black eye which Thurman said had been given to him by local skateboarders who'd been bullying him. Willie abandoned his attempt to die by suicide and confronted the skateboarders, assaulting their leader and intimidating them into leaving Thurman alone. The day was uneventful and Willie left as usual as the mall closed for the night. Marcus disguised himself as a little snowman in a holiday display and waited for the last guard to leave. Marcus then disabled the alarm system and went to the loading dock where Willie stood drinking can after can of beer, still in his Santa suit. After being led inside, Willie grabbed the pink elephant he'd promised Thurman and took it to the store's office, where a large safe awaited him. He had trouble at first with the safe. It was a Kintner boy redoubt, one of the toughest safes to crack. While Marcus gathered the goods that Lois had enlisted him to collect, Willie worked the safe, finally getting it open. Willie turned to Marcus to declare his success, only to find Marcus drawing down on him with his snub-nosed 38 special. Marcus revealed to Willie that he intended to kill him, fed up with his increasing carelessness. As Marcus was about to execute Willie, the police unexpectedly swarmed in, tipped off by the letter Willie had given Thurman, who in turn had given it to the police, thinking that's what Santa wanted. A firefight ensued between Marcus and the cops, and Willie fled in the stolen BMW, determined to give Thurman his present. Willie made made it to the... Willie made it to the Merman home, got out of the car, and began making his way to the house. Police who'd chased him all the way from the mall demanded he freeze, but Willie ignored them and ran for the door. They unloaded on Willie. He was shot 12 times in the back, but somehow he survived.
2: 12 times? 12 times in the back. That's, they ju- must have just missed all the vitals. Right. right? Yeah. That's, I, it, that's it's so amazing. Lucky. That's incredibly lucky. Yeah.
0: It's it's so lucky, you know, again, it's like, if this wasn't a real thing, you wouldn't believe it. That's nuts. Yeah, right? Like, it's one of those things. Hearing the commotion, children across the street from the shooting were traumatized after watching out the window as police shot Santa Claus, stuffed pink elephant, in his hand. It was touch and go for Willie for a while, but he began recovering from his wounds. He started attending recovery meetings and sobered up, and he's been sober ever since. While still in the hospital, as part of making amends, Willie wrote Thurman a letter, admitting he was not Santa Claus and thanking him for giving his letter to the police, well aware that it no doubt saved his life, even though he'd been shot a bunch of times. In the letter, Willie promised to come back soon and see Thurman, saying he'd bring him a new pink stuffed elephant, apologizing that the other had been bloodied after the police had shot Willie. He said he no longer wanted to be a bad Santa. Sue, the barmaid with whom Willie now wanted to be married, also sobered up and was granted guardianship of Thurman and the Merman house, taking care of Thurman's granny and the boy until Roger's release. The press coverage of the Phoenix police shooting an unarmed Santa Claus in the back in front of children earned Willie a pass on the burglary charges. They were so embarrassed by the event that they offered Willie a position on the force as a sensitivity counselor, which he accepted. Lois and Marcus were tried together and both were sentenced to death for the premeditated murder of Jin Calhoun. They are both still awaiting execution in Arizona. Thurman Merman did well. He and Roger eventually returned to Vancouver where Thurman had been born. There Thurman attended Simon Fraser University and the UBC Law School. He graduated top of his class and is now one of BC's top criminal defense attorneys. Roger now works at a Save-On food store in Surrey. Sadly, Granny passed away in 2021. Willie finally divorced Opal so he and Sue could marry. They have two kids, a boy and a girl, and live in Phoenix. Thurman visits often, usually over the Christmas holiday. Oh. Isn't that nice? Nice ending for them. I I like that it ended really nicely, and I'm, I'm glad that Lois and Marcus are in jail and awaiting execution. I, I don't like the death penalty. but I don't, I don't like that either. But Jin didn't deserve
2: what he got. Absolutely not. No.
0: And that is it for Dark Poutine episode 249, our Christmas special, Safe Cracking Santa and His Murderous Elf. Just a reminder, we will be taking the next couple weeks off for the holidays and will return on January 9th, 2023. That is... January 9th, 2023, and that's when you'll hear your next episode of Dark Poutine. Now on to voicemails. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Alrighty, righty. It is time for voicemails, and it looks like we had one person who called in twice, but they had forgotten to say something at the end. So let's let's listen to their voicemail anyway. Let's just have a listen.
3: Hey, I'm just calling because uh your guys's last episode didn't have any uh voicemails. So and I love your guys' show and I also love hearing what other people have to say as well. So um here's a little story. So, the first night I ended up spending over at my now uh, seven-year-long relationship boyfriend, um, his home, he ended up making this really fantastic dinner. Um, it was uh, stuffed mushroom caps and Alfredo and like, just a bunch of delicious, cheesy things. And we were falling asleep, and I was holding in my heart all day after eating. And then just as I started falling asleep, there was this thunderous fart. And I was, I just stood completely still and pretended that I was still sleeping. (laughs) And um, I was hoping that he wouldn't notice. But then all I hear is like him howling, laughing. And when he asked me about it, I pretended that I was just waking up. And I was like, oh, you could have done it. So that was um, part of the beginning of our relationship. I hope you have a good day and go shaking your hat.
0: <laughs> well, we'll talk about this in a sec, but she called back. Oh, she called back again. I yeah, want to yeah. hear this.
2: <laughs>
3: Um, me again. I forgot to
0: mention that's how I ended up
2: finding out I was lactose intolerant. Okay, right. <laughs> I, I love she didn't give us her name either. No, <laughs> I love that.
0: But who hasn't done that? Hold it in, held in, held in a fart at the beginning of a relationship because it's like you don't want that other person to know you're human and be grossed out by you. I love that. that she's like,
2: we've been together for seven years now. <laughs> <laughs> At least she just got the honesty out there, and just right out there. Stuffed mushroom caps, <laughs> stuffed mushroom
0: caps, Alfredo. Some, yeah, oh, that—that's good fart material lactose right there.
2: Lactose intolerance. <laughs> oh,
0: that's funny. You're lucky you didn't poo your pants because that's what happens sometimes with the lactose intolerance. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sharks. Anyway, uh, I think <laughs> just gonna leave it at that. On sharks. J- sharks. <laughs> Well, thanks for calling in and telling us about your farts. Thanks for calling in. (laughs) Calling in. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, Next, we have something that is interestingly more serious, and it is somebody who is calling us to talk about um, Supreme Court decisions and... um, Wow. and sex offender registry. So that's interesting. Maybe it's a lawyer. I don't know, but it's probably somebody who knows way more than us. So let's have a listen.
1: Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is the same law student who called you earlier this year to give some context about oh, a the Supreme Court decision that dealt with the defense of extreme intoxication. Oh. And I just wanted to chime in today with kind of a similar clarification about the recent Supreme Court case you guys talked about in the Wineville chicken coop murders episode, which was a great episode, by the way. So I know it sounds really scary that the Supreme Court said that an automatic lifetime registry on what they call the SOIRA is unconstitutional, but I just want to assure everybody that this really isn't as bad and scary as you think. So basically, SOIRA was enacted in 2004 and from 2004 until 2011, if the Crown wanted somebody to be put on the registry, they had to apply for it and the judge would make an order for it. So it wasn't automatic. And then in 2011, the law was amended so that as soon as somebody was convicted of a sexual offense, they had to go on the registry. And if somebody was convicted of two offenses, they were placed on CYREF for life with no ability to get taken off, even if it's been a long time and they haven't re- reoffended. nothing like that. So part of the problem here is that sexual offenses is a really broad category, and it can range from relatively less serious offenses all the way to sexual assault. So imagine if some drunk asshole at a party slapped somebody's ass without their consent, which is of course still bad and not what you want. But that dumb idiot would still get added to SOIRA even though that's not really what we think of when we think of a wow. sex offender registry. Another issue is that it didn't matter if the two offenses were part of the same transaction, it still meant lifetime registry. So if that same drunk asshole slapped two people while drunk at a party on the same night, he would be on SOIRA for life. So the purpose of SOIRA is to help the police in future investigations so they have access to, to offenders information so they can track them down and maybe solve a crime where somebody escalated into a serial offender or something like that. But that means that if every drunk asshole who slapped somebody's ass at a party is on the registry, it's, it's really crowding it up and it's not making it very easy for the police to find the people who are actually high risk offenders who are probably going to reoffend and escalate, like et cetera. So in all likelihood, the scheme is going to go back to the way it was before 2011, where it was discretionary and judges could decide whether it made sense to put somebody on there. So that means the people who really deserve to be on that registry are still going to be on the registry. It just means that judges have a little more wiggle room to decide if somebody's not a very high risk of reoffending or if the crime wasn't that serious. Those kinds of people will maybe not be on the registry, but the very serious offenders absolutely still will be. Anyways. Thanks, thanks for listening. Love the pod. Um, appreciate your guys' work and, and your kindness and um, empathy in every episode. Thanks.
0: Wow. That really, that actually. That's so helpful. Was so helpful <laughs> to help me to understand that decision. And this is the thing. People bang on about, oh, Canadian justice is so. No, that's Canadian justice working. Yeah. That is Canadian justice working. I have heard about people uh in the US at least, um, who took a pee in public and were put on the sex sex offender registry in the United States where they stay for life.
2: Just because they are peeing in the Because they
0: peed in public and they had nowhere else to go. Right. But they were caught whilst peeing. So they were being uh That's a little bit heavy handed, isn't it? It's a little heavy handed. So I'm really glad that it is now going to be brought back to a discretionary thing. Because she's right. She's totally right. We've talked about it on the podcast before. That's the first thing the pe- the police tend to do when they have an unsolved case is bring in the usual suspects. Hmm. And that's what that list is for, to
2: look at people who may be involved in this. And if you have a usual suspect that peed in public or slapped somebody's bottom at a party drunk. Right. That's probably not the suspect they're
0: yeah, looking for. Yeah, they, they would have to weed those guys out. Right. So it's yeah this is a gr- thank you so much for that voicemail. Oh,
2: honestly keep calling in. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah right? Um this kind of stuff is exactly what I want this podcast to be too. Yeah. Is for people to have some education about what it is that's really going on behind the scenes because this kind of thing helps me to learn too. And I love how we went from
2: charts to the Supreme Court. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is so dark Putin. Yeah
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway thank you thank you thank you thank you so much that's it for this week's voicemails again you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one eight seven seven D A dark we'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats if you're stumped for what to chat with us about a quick story is welcome On to Patreon and Donut Money donors, and holy smokes, people were filled with the Christmas spirit. Nice. Because we have a bunch, a bunch of patrons and Donut Money donors. We appreciate all of you very, very much. Of course we do. And you're going to hear about it right now. First up, we have L. Stone from Pine River, Minnesota. Thank you, L. Thanks, L. Yeah, what does L do in Pine River, Minnesota, Matthew? L
2: gives white water rafting tours on the beautiful dam park there in Pine River, Minnesota. Oh, really? Yeah, you can. She's like, you know, in front of the boat with the paddle, telling people not to capsize. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, if you tip over, well,
0: that's too bad. It's too bad you're going to be. They lose a lot of tourists there. <laughs> not when L's doing it, though. right? Yeah. Maybe not i don't want to get sued that is a joke l
2: does l l keeps everyone safe
0: yeah it's well they all do and i'm sure that the whitewater rafting tour companies that run there do as well i don't think anyone actually whitewaters on the dam mike okay (laughs) next up we have barbie stratyuk and she's from thorsby alberta thorsby Thorsby, Alberta. I don't know where Thorsby is or what they do in Thorsby, but Barbie does something there. What the
2: heck does she do, Matthew? I think she owns a ranch. A ranch? Yep. She And, and does she make ranch dressing? No, she has a thousand head of cattle.
0: Oh, I thought you were going to say a thousand island dressing. (laughs) Yeah,
2: thousand cattle dressing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A thousand head of cattle. What's the name of the ranch? Like, is it like the Bar K or the Bar B ranch? It's the Bar B (laughs) ranch. And you can get a
2: barbecue when you're there. That sounds great. Yeah. I could do with some ribs or a feed of brisket. I had the best food in Montreal recently.
0: I'm envious because you got to have Montreal bagels. Yes. Montreal bagels are fantastic. I mean, you can get them here, the the Montreal style We bagels. had them
2: delivered direct from Saint-Vieter. Oh. They're still warm, so literally.
0: Warm and soft.
2: Car picks them up, zips them to our meeting, they're still warm. Oh
0: my God, that yeah. sounds so good. Anyway, thanks, Barbie. Yeah, great. And enjoy your thousand head of cattle. Next we have from Orleans, Ontario. And I don't know if it's Orleans or Orleans, but either way, it is Ontario, And her name is Adela Reed. Adela. And what does Adela do there?
2: She's in the um, famous Orlean, Ontario Orchestra.
0: Really? Yes. So so there's an orchestra. We're going to... Oh, no. That won't be in the past. Uh, So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What does she... Does she play something in the orchestra? The triangle.
2: She plays the viola. Oh, Why? Because, and I recently learned this from an Uber driver. Okay. When you play the viola. Yep. There's so many fewer viola than violin players in the world. Yeah. That you always have work.
0: Well, interesting. Yeah. Well, there you go. So play your viola, Adela. Adela the viola player. Yeah. Nice. Next we have from Faribault, Minnesota,
2: Jennifer Abrams. Jennifer Abrams. Jennifer Abrams. Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. From Faribault, Minnesota. Yeah. Did you know that Faribault is named after the son of um, Jean-Baptiste Faribault, who who is a French-Canadian uh, fur trader?
0: Oh, so... French-Canadian fur traders being, are the namesakes for places in Minnesota.
2: Yeah. The son moved there from Canada. And Ale- Alexander Faribault and uh, the town's named after him. That's kind of nice. I thought so. There you go.
0: That's why Minnesotans have similar accents to Canadians, I think. Perhaps. A lot of
2: Minnesotans listen to us.
0: They do. Have you noticed that? Yes. We've I've... had two Minnesotans who are patrons this week. That's cool. That's cool. It is cool. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Jennifer.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, did we say what she no. did? No, we didn't. What does she do?
2: She's an anti fur activist. <laughs> oh well, there she's you go. She's going. She's going against the uh, the founder of her of her of her town. Oh no. Why are Why are people anti fur? I can tell you, and not anti leather.
0: Well, I think some people are anti-leather as well.
2: Because it's safer to yell at a little old lady than it is a biker. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Oh, well.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Jennifer. Next we have, and this is her username on Patreon. Sharon from Australia's Sapphire Coast. (laughs) Sharon from Australia's
2: Sapphire Coast.
0: So we didn't even have to guess where she's from because she told us in her username. And what does Sharon do there on Australia's Sapphire Coast? Also
2: known as Bega Valley Shire. Okay. Yes. And she does uh, tours of the Shire.
0: Tours of the Shire. Well, uh, isn't the Shire actually in New Zealand? (laughs)
2: Well, but people get all the way to Australia, yeah, and realize they just can't get on another flight, right? Oh, so so they so, created... so they set one up there, going, oh, okay. "You're close enough." It's Hobbit Light. <laughs> I've wanted to go to New Zealand about fifteen times, but by the time I get to Sydney, I give up. Yeah, <laughs> it's true.
0: It is true. Well, there you go. So, thank you, Sharon. That's really thank you. nice, Sharon from Australia, South Park Coast. Now, this one, I think we might have done, but I'm not sure. So So let's do it again. We'll do it again. Tina Ann from Victoria, British Columbia. Tina Ann. So what does Tina do in Victoria, Matthew? She
2: captains one of the helijets that goes back and forth.
0: Oh, there you go. Have you ever
2: been on the helijet?
0: No, I would like to take the helijet, but it's expensive. So
2: much easier than the ferry, though. Oh, yeah. I used to do work for BC Ferries. Yep. And I always took the Helojet to the meetings because the, the ferries are too slow. Oh, yeah. How'd you get here? Ferry? Yeah. Well, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I walked on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: then I got picked up by a taxi, driven all the way to the dude. PC. Yeah. Well, Helojet takes you right down to the harbor, like Harbor Air. Kind and it's cool because you're in a helicopter. Right. I've yeah. never been in a helicopter before. Really? Nope. I've been around helicopters filming and stuff. I've been in a Learjet filming but never mm. off the ground in either of those things.
2: Wow. Yeah. Anyway. I think that's your 2023 resolution is Mike gets a helicopter ride.
0: I would love a helicopter ride. So back to Patreon. We It looked like Patreon just gave a whole pile of new patrons around a certain time. Some of the patrons who we've shouted out, I can't find. So if... If we've missed you. I think
2: there was a glitch in the system of them reporting it. So if, I'll say it, if we missed you, can you send us an email? Darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And make sure that we get you because I like making fun of your jobs. (laughs) Yes, we do too. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So let's move on to donut money. And again, people are in the Christmas spirit uh, as far as donut money goes. So... First up, we have Breon Baxter from Vancouver, and she says, my appreciation for all the podcast hours that got me through 2022. Nice. Thank you, Breon. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. What does Breon do here in Vancouver, Matthew? Have you thought about that? Dog walker. She's a dog walker. Yep. There's a lot of dog walkers. You walk a dog, so I guess we could call you a dog walker. (laughs) I walk my dog. You do well. You're a dog walker then.
2: When he wants to walk, <laughs> maybe you're a dog dragger. He is getting a little bit older and a little bit um, more um, grumpy. That's not grumpy, just let's not walk too far. Stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Next, we have
0: our good friend from the Yumber Yard, Laurie St. Germain. Sending some holiday treats for you, Mike and Matthew, and a chewy treat for Steve. Happy holidays to you. All the best. Lori in Ottawa. Thank you, Lori. Thank you so much. I can't
2: recall what Lori does, Matthew. She's a senator in Ottawa. Oh, she's a senator. By that I I mean she plays the ice hockey. Oh, I thought she was going to be like in, you know. No, she plays the ice hockey. In the Senate. And Lori always paddles her own canoe. She'll know what I mean by that. There you go you should paddle your own canoe. Paddle your own
0: canoe. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. Uh, next we have Girolamo Voltaggio. Okay. What a great name. And all he said was donut money. Well, actually, I don't know if Girolamo is a, a man's name or a, let's just say they. Girolamo Voltaggio, Voltaggio
2: sent us some donut money. I think if it had an A, it would be a she, but it has an O, so it's okay. he. I think you're right. Yeah. From Milano, fashion designer studied under Emilio Pucci. Oh wow! Famous for his Starry Night bustiers, uh, he is. Oh well, there you go. Yeah. I I look terrible in a
0: bustier. <laughs> mm. we,
2: everyone has a fetish.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Somebody'd find it attractive. And last, but certainly not least, is our good friend, Denise Sakaki. Sakaki! Yeah, and uh, she sent us another huge donation. We really appreciate
2: that this time of year. I know where she's from. Where's she from? None of your fucking business, USA, planet Earth. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what it says on Facebook. (laughs) Oh, no, I just made it up. You just made it and up. And she's a Renaissance woman. I thought she was from Seattle. No, she's just from none of your fucking business. Well, that must Renaissance be Renaissance cool. woman, writer, photographer, designer, burlesque artist. She's a burlesque artist? Yeah, and she's well, she, cool. She illustrated a book called The Looney, the Canadian dollar coin. Oh,
0: well, there you go. Yeah. Did you see the new toonie with the black band around it in memory of the Queen? I did not. Yeah, there's an actual toonie that is coming out made by the Mint that has a black band around it for uh, Elizabeth II. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Thank you, Sakaki. Yes, much appreciated, Denise. Uh, Renaissance woman. Denise has always been a big fan of the show, and we really,
2: really, really appreciate your donation. Renaissance. <laughs> we appreciate everyone's. Look yeah. at this. Look at all these lovely people. Of so course. I'm just going through this. Uh, all it's these nice, nice people forked out their money to keep us going. Yep. Uh, Which I'm so grateful for.
0: You have no idea. That was great. It is great. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Okay, so you won't hear us for a couple of weeks. So until the new year, happy holidays, whatever it is. Merry Christmas. Give your family Hanukkah, a hug. Kwanzaa. Like any of those things. Um,
2: new Year's
0: Eve, be careful out there. Yeah, don't drink and drive, folks. And don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye.